epic tales of mystery and magic to accounts of battle and empire from the verses of ancient poets to the masterpieces of our times a light on literature brings to life China's literary heritage and a look at the world in a new light In today's A Light on Literature, we continue by presenting the book Two Years in the Forbidden City by Princess De Ling. Today, Man Lin narrates the first part of the 12th chapter, titled The Empress and Mrs. Conga. This chapter is a deep dive into how Empress Dowager Cixi interacts and reacts with the outside world by giving non-Chinese lady visitors rare access to her restricted private courtyards and chambers. It also includes the eye and ear catching description of Cixi's vivid escape from Peking, her strong attitude towards Western missionaries and Christianity, her interpretation of the Boxer Rising, and her interest in striving to show the better side of life in her country to the outside world. Enjoy! The Empress and Mrs. Conger. On the 26th day of the fifth moon, during the morning audience, Prince Ching told Her Majesty that Mrs. Conger, the wife of the American minister to Peking, had asked for a private audience, and would Her Majesty please mention a day. She told him not to give any answer until the next day, just to give her time to think it over. I was sitting behind the large screen, listening, but the other court ladies made too much noise, so Her Majesty ordered them not to say a word during audience. I was very glad myself because I could listen to some of the interesting conversations between the Empress Dowager and her ministers. After the audience, Her Majesty ordered her lunch to be served on the top of the hill at Pai Yun Dian Spreading Cloud Pavilion. She said that she preferred to walk, so we followed her very slowly. To get to this place, we had to mount 272 steps, besides 10 minutes climbing over rough stones. She did not seem to mind the climbing part at all. It was the funniest thing to see two little eunuchs on either side to support her arms, trying to keep pace with her. I noticed that she was very much preoccupied and did not speak to any of us. When we arrived at our destination, we were very tired and quite exhausted. Her Majesty, who was a, a good walker herself, laughed at us. She was always very much pleased when she excelled in games of skill or endurance. She said, You see, I'm old and can walk much faster than you young people. You are all no use. What is the matter with you? Her Majesty was very fond of receiving compliments. I had been there long enough to know, and had learned to say things which would please her. She also hated anyone to pay her compliments at the wrong moment, so one had to be very careful even in paying her compliments. This spreading cloud pavilion was a beautiful palace. 
It had an open space in front of the building, just like one of the courtyards, with pink and white oleanders all over the place. There was a porcelain table and several porcelain stools. Her Majesty sat on her own yellow satin stool and was drinking her tea in silence. It was very windy that day, although the sky was blue with warm sunshine. Her Majesty sat there just for a few minutes and then said it was too windy and went into the building. I was more than glad to go in too and whisper to the young Empress that I thought the wind might blow off my headdress. The eunuchs brought the lunching and placed everything upon the table. The young Empress made a sign for us to follow her, which we did. When we came to the back veranda, we sat down on the window seats. I will explain about these seats. All the windows were built low at the palace, and on the veranda there was something like a bench built along the window, about a foot wide. There were no chairs to be seen excepting Her Majesty's thrones. The young empress asked me whether I had noticed that Her Majesty had something on her mind. I told her that perhaps she was thinking about the private audience which Prince Ching had mentioned that morning. She said that I had guessed right and asked, Do you know anything about this audience? When will it take place? I said that Her Majesty had not yet given her answer. By this time, Her Majesty had finished eating and was walking up and down the room, watching us eating. She came over to my mother and said, I am just wondering why Mrs. Conger asks for a private audience. Perhaps she has something to say to me? I would like to know just what it is so I can prepare an answer. My mother said that probably Mrs. Conger had someone visiting her who wished to be presented to Her Majesty. No, it can't be that, because they must give the list of names of those who wish to come to the palace. I don't mind the former audiences, but I don't think that I should have private ones at all. I don't like to be questioned, as you all know. The foreigners are, of course, very nice and polite according to their own way, but they cannot compare with us so far as etiquette is concerned. I may be conservative in saying that I admire our custom and will not change it as long as I live. You see, our people are taught to be polite from their earliest childhood and just to look back at the oldest teachings and compare them with the new. People seem to like the latter the best. I mean that the new idea is to be Christians, to chop up their ancestral tablets and burn them. I know many families here who have broken up because of the missionaries who are always influencing the young people to believe their religion. Now, I tell you why I feel uneasy about this audience is because we are too polite to refuse anyone who asks us any favors in person. The foreigners don't seem to understand that. I will tell you what I will do. Whenever they ask me anything, I will simply tell them that I'm not my own boss, but have to consult with my ministers. Uh, that although I am the Empress Dowager of China, I must also obey the law. 
to tell the truth, I like Madame Yuchida, wife of the Japanese minister to Peking, very much. She's always very nice and doesn't ask any silly questions. Of course, the Japanese are very much like ourselves, not at all forward. Last year, before you came to the court, a missionary lady came with Mrs. Conger and suggested that I should um, establish a school for girls at the palace. I did not like to offend her and said that I would um, take it into consideration. Now, just imagining it for a moment, wouldn't it be foolish to have a school at the palace? Besides, where am I going to get so many girls to study? Oh, I have enough to do as it is. I don't want all the children of the imperial family studying at my palace. Her Majesty laughed while she was telling us this, and everyone else laughed too. She said, I'm sure you will laugh. Mrs. Congo is a very nice lady. America is always very friendly towards China, and I appreciate their nice behavior at the palace during the 26th year of Quan Shu, 1900. But I cannot say that I love the missionaries, too. Li Lingyin told me that these missionaries here give the Chinese a certain medicine, and that after that they wish to become Christians, and then they would pretend to tell the Chinese to think it over very carefully, for they would never force anyone to believe their religion against their own will. Missionaries also take the poor Chinese children and gouge their eyes out and use them as a kind of medicine. I told her that that was not true, that I had met a great many missionaries and that they were very kind-hearted and willing to do anything to help the poor Chinese. Ever wondered what sets China apart from the rest of the world? Do you want to know how China really works? How is China of the past different from the present? Get all the answers to your questions by visiting China Plus Audiobooks. Access a whole new world of audiobooks on our website at chinaplus.cri.cn slash podcast. Explore the philosophy, spirit, and story of the Chinese people. I also told her what they had done for the poor orphans, given them a home, food, and clothing, that sometimes they went into the interior and found the blind children who might be useless to their parents, and when they get them, they have to support them. I know several cases like that. These country people offer their deformed children to the missionaries as they are too poor to feed and take care of them. I told her about their schools and how they helped the poor people. Her Majesty then laughed and said, Of course I believe what you say, but um, why don't these missionaries stay in their own country and be useful to their own people? I thought it would be of no use for me to talk too much. But at the same time, I would like her to know of the dreadful times some of the missionaries had in China. Some time ago, two of them were murdered at Wu Shui in June 1892, a little below Hankou, the church being burned down by the mob. 
My father was appointed by Viceroy Chan Chitan to investigate the matter. After much trouble, he caught three of the murderers, and according to the Chinese law, they were put to death by hanging in wooden cages. And the government paid an indemnity to the families of the murdered missionaries. The year after, 1893, a Catholic church was burnt down at Ma Chen on the Yanzi near Yichang. The mob said they saw many blind children at the church who were made to work after having their eyes gouged out. The prefect of Yichang province said it was true that missionaries did get the Chinese children's eyes for making medicine, so my father suggested having those blind children brought into the Yamen and ask them. The prefect was a most wicked man and was very anti-foreign also. He gave the poor children plenty of food and taught them to say that the missionaries did gouge their eyes out. But when they were brought in the next day, they said that the missionaries treated them very kindly and gave them a nice home, good food and clothing. They said they were blind long before they became Catholics and also said that the prefect had taught them to say that the missionaries were cruel to them which was not true. The blind children begged to go back to the school and said that they were very happy there. Her Majesty said, That may be all right for them to help the poor and relieve their suffering. For instance, like our great Buddha, Ju Lai, who fed the hungry birds with his own flesh, I would love them if they would uh, leave my people alone. Let us believe our own religion. Do you know how the Boxer Rising began? Why? The Chinese Christians were to blame. The boxers were treated badly by them and wanted revenge. Of course, that is always the trouble with the low class of people. They went too far and at the same time thought to make themselves rich by setting fire to every house in Peking. It made no difference whose house. They wanted to burn so long as they could get money. These Chinese Christians are the worst people in China. They rob the poor country people of their land and property, and the missionaries, of course, always protected them in order to get a share themselves. Whenever a Chinese Christian is taken to the magistrate's yamen, he's not supposed to kneel down on the ground and obey the Chinese law as others do and is always very rude to his own government officials. Then these missionaries do the best they can to protect them, whether he is wrong or not, and believe everything he says, and make the magistrate set the prisoner free. Do you remember that your father established rules in the 24th year of Guangxu how the Chinese officials should treat the bishops whenever they had dealings with each other? I know the common class of people become Christians, also those who are in trouble, but I don't believe that any of the high officials are Christians. Her Majesty looked around and whispered, Kang Yu Wai, the reformer in 1898, tried to make the emperor believe that religion. No one shall believe as long as I live. I must say that I admire the foreigners in some ways. For instance, their 
navies and armies and engineers. But as regards civilization, I should say that China is the first country by all means. I know that many people believe that the government had connections with the boxes, but that is not true. As soon as we found out the trouble, we issued several edicts and ordered the soldiers to drive them out. But they had gone too far already. I made up my mind not to go out of the palace at all. I am an old woman and did not care whether I died or not. But Prince Tuan and Duke Lan suggested that we should go at once. They also suggested that we should go in disguise, which made me very angry. And I refused. After the return of the court to Peking, I was told that many people believed that I did go in disguise and said that I was dressed in one of my servant's clothes and rode in a broken cart drawn by a mule and that this old woman, servant of mine, was dressed as the Empress Dowager and rode in my sedan chair. I wonder who made that story up? Of course, everyone believed it and such a story would get to the foreigners in Peking without any trouble. Now, to come back to the question of the boxer rising, how badly I was treated by my own servants. No one seemed anxious to go with me, and a great many ran away before the court had any idea of leaving the capital at all, and those who stayed would not work, but stood around and waited to see what was going to happen. I made up my mind to ask and see how many would be willing to go, so I said to everyone, if you servants are willing to go with me, you can do so, and those who are not willing can leave me. I was very much surprised to find that there were very few standing around listening. Only 17 eunuchs, two old women servants, and one servant girl that was Shou Chu. Those people said they would go with me, no matter what happened. I had 3,000 eunuchs, but they were nearly all gone before I had the chance of counting them. Some of the wicked ones were even rude to me and threw my valuable vases on the stone floor and smashed them. They knew that I could not punish them at that important moment, for we were leaving. I cried very much and prayed for our great ancestors' souls to protect us. Everyone knelt with me and prayed. The young empress was the only one of my family who went with me. A certain relative of mine, whom I was very fond of, and gave her everything she asked, refused to go with me. I knew that the reason she would not go was because she thought the foreign soldiers would catch up the runaway court and kill everyone. After we had been gone about seven days, I sent one eunuch back to find out who was still in Peking. She asked this eunuch whether there were foreign soldiers chasing us and whether I was killed. Soon after the Japanese soldiers took her palace and drove her out, she thought she was going to die anyway, and as I was not yet assassinated, she might catch up with the court and go with us. I could not understand how she traveled so fast. One evening, we were staying at a little country house when she came in with her husband, a nice man, 
She was telling me how much she had missed me and how very anxious she had been all that time to know whether I was safe or not and cried. I refused to listen to what she was saying and told her plainly that I did not believe a word. From that time, she was finished for me. I had a very hard time traveling in a sedan chair from early morning before the sun rose until dark and in the evening had to stop at some country place. I am sure you would pity me, old as I am, that I should have had to suffer in that way. The emperor went all the way in a cart drawn by a mule, also the empress. I went along and was praying to our great ancestors for protection. But the emperor was very quiet and never opened his mouth. One day something happened. It rained so much, and some of the chair carriers ran away. Some of the mules died suddenly. It was very hot, and the rain was pouring down on our heads. Five small eunuchs ran away also because we were obliged to punish them the night before on the count of their bad behavior to the magistrate, who did all he could to make me comfortable. But of course, food was scarce. I heard these eunuchs quarreling with the magistrate, who bowed to the ground, begging them to keep quiet, and promised them everything. I was, of course, very angry. Traveling under such circumstances, one ought to be satisfied that one was provided for. It took us more than a month before we reached Xi'an. I cannot tell you how fatigued I was, and was of course worrying very much, which made me quite ill for almost three months. So long as I live, I cannot forget it. We returned to Peking early in the 28th year of Quanxu, and I had another dreadful feeling when I saw my own palace again. Oh, it was quite changed. A great many valuable ornaments broken or stolen. All the valuable things at the sea palace had been taken away, and someone had broken the fingers of my white jade Buddha, to whom I used to worship every day. Several foreigners sat on my throne and had their photos taken. When I was at Xi'an, I was just like being sent into exile, although the viceroy's yamen was prepared for us, but the building was very old, damp, and unhealthy. The emperor became ill. It would take a long time to tell you everything. I thought I had enough trouble, but this last was the worst when I have time, I will tell you more about it. I want you to know the absolute truth. And that was from the 12th chapter of Two Years in the Forbidden City, written by Princess De Ling and narrated by Man Ling. Join us next time on A Light on Literature for the next part of the chapter.
wondered what sets China apart from the rest of the world? Do you want to know how China really works? How is China of the past different from the present? Get all the answers to your questions by visiting China Plus Audiobooks. Access a whole new world of audiobooks on our website at chinaplus.cri.cn slash podcast. Explore the philosophy, spirit, and story of the Chinese.